0: Fair warning. This show contains strong language and adult themes from time to time. Sorry, Jerry can't help it. Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror. Always
1: genre. It's your pal Jerry here, and I'm excited to tell you all about my thrilling new limited series podcast called The Halloween Conspiracy with Jerry Hara. In each episode of The Halloween Conspiracy, I delve into the backstory and history of infamous local urban legends, myths, and folklore, with stories that have haunted me my entire life, like The Montauk Project, The Amityville Horror House, Nikolai Tesla's Wardenclyffe Laboratory. I need you to tune in and help me get to the bottom of Long Island's biggest mysteries. Listen to this special three-part The Halloween Conspiracy with your host, me, Jerry Hara, starting October 1st, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your favorite shows. Your life may just depend on it. If you're anything like me, you're always on the lookout for cool, new, original gift items that you could give to your horror and genre-obsessed loved ones, or even something you could get to treat yourself. I found the perfect thing for you. Geek Emporium has custom hand-etched glass art that's the perfect gift. Believe me, when you see these glass mugs, glass jars, and original prints, you're going to want all of them for your own collection. Geek Emporium covers every genre you can imagine. Marvel star wars 80s and 90s horror i'm looking through the website right now GeekEmporium.NYC, and i can see featured. they got some gorgeous stuff from labyrinth with jennifer connelly a nightmare before christmas i see brandon lee's the crow they cover the whole genre gamut it's incredible i met up with these guys at eternal con on long island i got my hands on a sweet texas chainsaw massacre leather face glass mug and a freddy krueger wooden coffin all custom these are hand drawn they were drawing it right in front of me so what are you waiting for you can always check out their Etsy shop or head over to geekemporium.nyc right now and scroll through the goods trust me your geek loving loved one will thank you later stay spooky all year long at Strangelove Parlor Long Island's exquisite oddities and curiosity parlor in Lindenhurst New York they've got some ghastly apparel. Strange Love Parlor supplies an array of goth jewelry, unisex horror-themed gear, Halloween accoutrement, monstrous purses and wallets, spooky pins, patches, and stickers, providing you with the most wonderful and the most strange of treasures. Visit Strangelove Parlor regularly to find the item of your dreams, or perhaps even your nightmares. Grab your ghoul gang and visit today. Strange Love Parlor in Lindenhurst, Long Island, New York. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on the season finale of The Offering, we're talking all about Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Gentlemen, friends beyond the binary, it is me, Jerry Hara, this is the offering, this is the season finale, I want to thank each and every one of you for making this possible, for showing up, and helping make this show such a success. Shout out to our main man, R.A., the Rugged Man, Hip Hop Poet Laureate, Rapper Extraordinaire, Seriously, he does the parental advisory at the top of the show, and that shit is dope. So thank you to R.A. The Rugged Man. Can't wait to hear your new record. Guys, this has been an incredible season. We've covered some of the most extraordinary films from 1988. In fact, eight great films from 1988. All having a very special place in my heart. There were a lot of sequels this year. There were a lot of films that were wholly original, especially stuff like Beetlejuice. Films like that, they've made an impact on film as a whole. You know, I can't imagine a world where some of these movies uh, didn't exist. So thank you. Thank you to all of our supporters. Uh, Most importantly, we've been getting a lot of really good reviews on iTunes. In fact, when you leave a review on iTunes, and it's good, I'll read it. Even if it's not good, I mean, don't, don't go spamming me with one-star reviews, that, that's not cool, but if you're going to leave a little love, I'm going to read it. So here we go from our good friend, Helen Back Again, that is a fantastic name, five-star review from iTunes, Mostly Horror, Always Jerry, one of the better podcasts on horror movies that I've listened to. It's not a whole bunch of dude bros being snarky about the films I love. It's just one self-deprecating dude bro who respects and loves the films he talks about. And I love that. Like a film class with no test, you can take all the information you learned from Jerry and the offering to your next party or horror con and sound like a genius. Thanks, Professor Jerry. Thank you to Helen Back again. That was a fantastic review. It really does warm my heart. People are starting to listen to this show, and they're actually enjoying it, which is absolutely incredible. It blows my mind. I'm very thankful. I'm thankful to all the listeners. I'm thankful to all of our supporters. And again, to R.A. the Rugged Man. Because why not? He's a good dude. Let's give him a shout out. This season has been a lot of fun, and it breaks my heart to see it come to an end. But it's important for you to support the show. Tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. I don't know. Do whatever the hell it is that people do in this day and age. We're covering a very special film to me. It's Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers, and man, it's crazy. You would think that it wasn't rocket science to bring Michael Myers back to the silver screen. Oh, were you wrong? Because there were so many permutations and different takes on this film. It's absolutely incredible. We're going to get into it, and I assure you, it's a banger. And again, I just want to thank everybody for making this season such a success. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and that comes from producer Pete as well, who also wants to send his good wishes and good fortune to your friends and family. Alright, enough of the ass kissing, let's get into this episode, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Halloween 4 is a really special movie to me. Okay, it's the first film in the franchise that I saw in theaters, so that was a big deal. It was very exciting to go see this in a theater around Halloween time. It definitely was a very seminal film for me, because, I mean, 1988 is just insane. You've got Freddy Krueger's the number one boogeyman on the block, but you've also got Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, and Michael Myers finally coming back to the big screen, This was a big deal. It's also the only year that all three of those boogeymen appeared in cinemas at the same time. I mean, not at the same time, but in the same year. Halloween 4 was basically played endlessly on AMC in the early to mid aughts. There was a period that I went through with this movie where I just was so fucking sick of it. I'm like, oh my God. Because they played it so much. They played Halloween 4 and 5 ad nauseum, on repeat, I want to say for the better part of like five or six years. So I think a lot of people experience the film that way. So there's a lot of fuzzy, nostalgic memories. Look, it is what it is, but I think it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I grew tired of these films. I want to say it was probably, wow, it's been a long time. I cut the cord from cable. It's, it's got to be like almost a decade now. And I don't watch terrestrial television, so I have no fucking idea what goes on. I don't see the commercials. I don't see what they're promoting. You know, some of my friends, they say, oh, that was on FX the other day. I'm like, I don't watch FX, Grandpa. I don't know what you're talking about. I think the making of Halloween, the return of Michael Myers, has been well documented. Actress Daniel Harris, she basically, I think she's given us everything we need to know. She's been a gigantic asset, especially being a child as Jamie Lloyd making these films. You know, Because when you're a kid, you're just soaking everything up like a sponge. So she's been able to let us know how this film was made and how it all worked. So that's great. That's fine. We know all that stuff. You know, you can go. Scream Factory did that fantastic Blu-ray box set. They just released another small box set. The films are now out in 4K. You know, you can really go to hell with yourself and watch the special features and find out about everything that went into the making of Halloween 4. But we're here to discuss the various permutations and the films that didn't get made, ultimately. It's a wild ride, so strap in. Get a snack, if you will. Stay hydrated.
0: Ten years ago, on the night of October 31st, a small Midwestern town fell victim to an escaped killer. Under the cover of darkness, he carried out the most horrifying mass murder on record. Sixteen people in cold blood. Ever since that night, no one has forgotten his name. And Halloween has never been the same. Now... Michael Myers has come home. He has returned for one more night of unholy terror. Michael! Somebody help me! He's here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way. Oh, God! Who's gonna be next? Ah! Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Maybe nobody knows how to
1: stop him. The road to getting back. Well, the road to getting Michael Myers back home was a bumpy one. But let's start from the beginning. Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Tagline. Ten years ago, he changed the face of Halloween. Now he's back. Released October 21st, 1988. Film was made for approximately $5 million. Box office was $17.8 million. Nice little chunk of change. Good return on investment. What was in theaters? Well, believe it or not, the week before, we had number one at the box office, Alien Nation. Rest in peace to James Conn, who passed away this year. Very sad. Fantastic actor. Gorillas in the Mist uh, with Sigourney Weaver. Punchline with Tom Hanks. Yeah, remember that one? The Accused. Uh, That's a rough watch. Seriously, if you have uh, trigger warnings about rape, not for you and not a good film for Family Night. Not going to want to show that to mom when she comes over. Cocktail. The resurgence of Tom Cruise the last few years has been incredible. Top Gun Maverick was incredible. And number six at the box office, Halloween 4. (laughs) We know all about that. You had Big. Big was, was gigantic that year. Young Guns, and rounding out the top ten, uh, A Fish Called Wanda, which was a fantastic film. What I love about this movie, this Halloween 4, it's a tight 88 minutes. And here at The Offering, we are fans of the 90-minute movie. It just, It's the right length to go, to be entertained, get in and out, especially with something like this. As the title suggests, the film marks the return of Michael Myers after his absence in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which was made in 1982. This is a direct sequel to Halloween 2. It ignores the events of Season of the Witch, which took place supposedly in a different continuity from the first two films. So initially, John Carpenter and co-producer Deborah Hill They intended to create an anthology series. That's what Halloween 3 was essentially all about. You know, the first two films are the only ones that are connected, but we're going to do a yearly film about something different. And we're going to do it every year. And I think that idea was brilliant. It would be really cool, you know, having different directors, different stories. Every year you could kind of celebrate it. But unfortunately, the world just wasn't ready for it. Halloween 3 is definitely that... Marty McFly moment where he's playing the song at the end of Back to the Future and he's like, you know, like, you might not like it, but your kids are going to love it. And that's basically what Halloween 3 is. It was a movie that was way ahead of its time. Now, Halloween 4 was originally intended to be a ghost story, but after the poor reception of Halloween 3, due to not being a continuation of Michael Myers' story, the film reintroduced him and he has remained the main antagonist throughout the entire series. This also marks the beginning of the Thorne Trilogy, okay? Very controversial. I enjoy the Thorn Trilogy. I'm on that side of the fence. The film begins a story arc, which would be continued in Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, and comes to a sort of conclusion in Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, So, where do we start with all of this? Producer Mustafa Akkad says basically, we can't fuck this up. With the poor reception of Halloween 3, Akkad knew that this was the last shot with the Halloween franchise. If Halloween 4 wasn't going to work in any way, the series was dead. It was just going to be something that was forgotten and, and looked over until they rebooted it 20 years later. Of course, this is the early 80s, you know? We're talking like 83, 84. They're still figuring out how to get this film made. Three distinct scripts were written as pitches for Halloween 4. There were four strict rules that Mustafa Akkad told everybody this is, we got to stick to these, these rules or we can't make this movie. It must have Donald Pleasance as Loomis, it must have Lori. It's got to have lots of Michael Myers and the final most important rule, whatever happens, do not mention the events of Halloween three. So that basically is what the, this is what the writers were told. They were like, okay, well if you're going to make this movie, no matter what you do, it's like, you know, gizmo and the gremlins don't get them wet. Do not just pretend Halloween three didn't happen so it's not a part of the mainline continuity of the series at this point. So Mustafa Kod asks the writers, he, you know, he poses this very simple, eloquent uh, question. Where's Michael? Where is he? What's he been doing? And that's what he wanted from the writers. He wants to know, all right, at the end of Halloween 2, you know, he gets burned alive. What happens to him? What's he been doing? What's he been up to? You know what? What's you know who's he dating? This is where things get weird. I learned this this year. I had no idea. John Carpenter was approached by Cannon Films, who had just finished 1986's *The Texas Chainsaw Massacre* too. They had Toby Hooper over there. He did *Life Force* and he did *Invaders from Mars*, which are fantastic films. But Cannon spent a lot of money on them, and. They didn't exactly light the box office on fire. So the ace in the hole was always to get Hooper to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Except he was making a darkly comedic film, and Canon wanted a straight horror film. So they were not on the same page. And that's a whole nother episode. We'll get into that at another time. You stay tuned. But man. So Canon, obviously, if you know them. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1 and 2 Fantastic books by Austin Trunick It's a plethora of great information available in those books It's uh, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus They brought the world uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme All the Chuck Norris films Charles Bronson, Masters of the Universe, Superman 4 For better or worse, they made some of the greatest movies That were intentionally and unintentionally comedic (laughs) Yeah, that happened So, Cannon comes to John Carpenter They say, hey, look You want to write and direct Halloween 4? And Deborah Hill planned to produce this film So Carpenter teams up With the guy who did the novelizations Dennis Etchinson, Who, obviously, he was under the pseudonym Jack Martin He wrote the novelizations of both Halloween 2, Halloween 3 And he was to write a script Now, this is going back this is going back like 83, 84, that Carpenter approaches Etchinson to write the screenplay for this movie. Now, originally, again, it's a different time. Joe Dante was Carpenter's first choice to direct the project, and I want to think in a different universe, Halloween 4 gets made with Joe Dante, and that just would have been incredible. Unfortunately, Joe Dante was in pre-production For a little film called Gremlins So he wasn't going to leave that You know, he's working with Spielberg You know, and look Dude, John Carpenter's a genius, he's a god But to work with Spielberg And have a big budget film You can't blame him You know, I I think he chose the right way to go on this one The history books will dictate otherwise So, Akkad gets Dennis Etchison's script And he's like This is too cerebral. It just doesn't work. Dennis Etchinson's script is very cerebral. It's very scary. It's weird, but it's not what they wanted. The first thing that Mustafa Akkad didn't like about the script was that Michael Myers was a ghost. And he basically said, he's like, he has to be a flesh and blood killer. He's got to be a man. In an interview, Etchinson explained how he received the phone call informing him of the rejection of his script. Etchinson said, I received a call from Deborah Hill, and she said, Dennis, I just want you to know that John and I have sold our interest in the title Halloween, and unfortunately, your script was not a part of that deal. This is more interesting behind-the-scenes stuff. Carpenter and Hill had signed all of their rights away to Akkad, who gained ownership at that point fully of the Halloween franchise. Akkad said, I just went back to the basics of Halloween on Halloween 4, and it was the most successful. As Carpenter refused to continue his involvement with the series, a new director was sought out. Eventually, it would be Dwight H. Little, native of Ohio, who replaced Carpenter. Little had previously directed episodes of Freddy's Nightmares and the film Getting Even for the record. Series creator John Carpenter wrote a treatment for this film. Now, this was the treatment that went to canon. It was much more ghostly, psychological approach to the Michael Myers mythos. This treatment ultimately went to Etchison and then was turned into the script that was rejected. But the main idea that Carpenter had was it concerned the town of Haddonfield and basically what effect the first two films had on the citizens. The concept was later rejected by producers in favor, again, of the typical slasher fare. At which point, this was the only thing that interested Carpenter. If he was going to do another Halloween, it was going to be something that was different. And it's funny because, like the David Gordon Green films, Carpenter came back and did the music, and that was kind of the conceit in 1983, 84. Like, oh... You know, I'll come back as a producer, I wrote the treatment, and I'll do the music. It just, it, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And then ultimately, we know all these years later, it did. The script is wild. This Dennis Edgerton script is, is crazy. It's available online. Definitely give it a read. It's not very long. I think it's like 98 pages. It's a, it's a short little thing. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill love this script, by the way. Even though they sold their interest in the Halloween franchise at that point, this was the direction that Carpenter and Hill wanted to take. There's some really exciting aspects to this script. Halloween is banned. So, in the town of Haddonfield, after the first two films happen, they like out-and-out ban Halloween. It's kind of like a dirty word. Tommy and Lindsay, from the first film, they're the protagonists. They're teenagers. So it makes sense within the timeline. In this script, there's no Lori. there's no Loomis, but hey, Sheriff Brackett's here and everybody loves Sheriff Brackett, but you already see the problem. Mustafa Akkad had these rules, you know, like it needs Lori, it needs Loomis, and taking those two elements out of the film with the script, there was no way it was going to fly. Can I just say, the reason I love this movie, well, excuse me, this script, is because Michael is straight up a ghost like he's totally supernatural. It's not even like, oh, you know, like there's they're flirting with it. He is straight up a ghost. He's doing all kinds of ghostly shit. He's not really there. But stylistically, I understand why Carpenter wanted to make this film. If you look at the original Halloween 78, it's kind of has all these very it's out of all the horror films, the reason it works is because it's super cinematic. There's all these different, there's a little bit of French New Wave. There's a lot of German expressionist stuff in Halloween. And I think that interested, as far as a filmmaker and the language of film, that was what was interesting to him was like, okay. Because the reason Halloween works from a cinematography point of view is that it's about light and dark. And that white mask looks fan. Fucking-tastic in the dark It's a juxtaposition that works well I mean, obviously, hey All these years later, we're still making it And it works It's, you know, it's a tried and true formula So, in this script (laughs) Michael Myers' power grows Based on the fear that he creates So, and it's crazy because this script Was written a year before Nightmare on Elm Street would come out And that's kind of how Freddy works Where, you know, your fear is what gives him power. And I think that's what was happening in this screenplay. The more mayhem that he caused via his presence and via the psychological torture that the citizens of Haddonfield were under, he becomes a stronger entity. A lot of this movie is just based on these scary sequences where the ghost of Michael Myers, this specter of yesteryear, is just watching and following. It's kind of this omnipresent figure. The climax of this film takes place at the Lost River Drive-In, just outside of Haddonfield, where the youth have decided to have their own Halloween shindig. So there's that element of Footloose, where the kids are all told, you can't celebrate Halloween. So they go to this drive-in that's like a couple of towns over, and they decide they're gonna have this party, and they're going to watch horror movies. One of those movies, they were basically at that point, like one of the movies was going to be like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. One film was going to be, um, oh God, The Hills Have Eyes. It was just like all like shout outs to all of the horror contemporaries that were making films at that point. (laughs) Look, it just, it gets weirder. It just gets weirder and weirder. So now Michael appears to be kind of flesh and blood, and there's a mass slaughter like we would see in Halloween Kills. He's just killing everyone in the drive-in. The ghost of Michael Myers. Just follow me. I know this all sounds crazy, but the ghost of Michael Myers is now able to have like a flesh and blood corporeal form where he's able to interact with things now. And again, for most of the movie, he's literally just a ghost, kind of like floating, like woo, like <laughs> you know, it's he's not like a real thing, but now he is and he's he's murdering everyone at the lost river drive-in. <laughs> I look, I, like as I go through my notes, I'm looking at this stuff and it's like I can't believe that I'm saying it, but okay, here we go. He gets shot by the police. And then Michael Myers turns into a two-story giant version of himself. This is lit- I'm not kidding. Go read the script. This is what happens. So he turns into this like two-story version of Michael Myers. It becomes like a kaiju thing where he's like, you know, he's breaking stuff. Ultimately, he somehow gets stopped by Tommy and Lindsay via an exploding gas container. He shrinks back down and then just kind of vanishes. And Michael is nowhere to be found. And Lindsay and Tommy, they've, they've got kind of this love thing happening and they leave town. And that's the end. Like, like, does any of this Look, I like the stuff about Michael Myers as a ghost is fine But that finale is absolute ass That it's like he's this Pac-Man type of creature That's just consuming fear And becomes so strong and so powerful That he's able to turn into a two-story gigantic monster I don't know that third act just sucks. Like, I'm sorry. There's, there's, there's no way around it. I think everything up until then is fine. Like I'm fine. No Lori, no Loomis. I mean, look, we revisited it with these David Gordon green films and even with H2O. But to be honest, I think that if Halloween is a franchise beyond this new trilogy, if it's going to survive, you've got to bring in some new characters and perhaps maybe put Michael in a setting that he hasn't been in before. So, ultimately, Mustafa Cod kills the screenplay due to its supernatural nature. He basically had shades of Halloween 3, and that was just not going to work. So, Carpenter and Hill, they, they tried to sell him on the screenplay as hard as they could, but ultimately, they wanted a, they wanted a non-supernatural entry into this series. So... Carpenter and Hill, just frustrated by this whole thing, they sell their their equity within the Halloween franchise. I think part of it was that Carpenter and Hill were afraid that they would just be making the same movie over and over again. Like, no matter what screenplay they gave him, it would just have to be some kind of a paint-by-numbers recreation of the first two films. And I think at that point in Carpenter's career and Hill's career as a producer and writer, they just didn't want to do it. Carpenter's looking to move into new avenues, you know, maybe do some action pictures, maybe do something different, and it just was not the right time. I don't blame them. I don't, because it's one of these crazy things where it's like Halloween, Deborah Hill, rest in peace, passed away, and uh, Carpenter is constantly reminded of Halloween like it just becomes this thing like no matter what he does at some point if he's doing an interview somebody brings it up and it just got to be kind of like a weight on his back and his shoulders and he would largely stay away from it they would make the sequels to these films and Carpenter would be like yeah pay me I don't care I'm again we've we've gone through this I'm gonna play NBA 2k and get stoned write me a check And that's why it was nice when he finally came back to the David Gordon Green Trilogy. He got to do the music, a little more hands-on, was enjoying his experience. And I think that's a beautiful thing. He's an asset. The music is fantastic. If you haven't, go and listen to those soundtracks. They're incredible. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry
0: Horror. Twenty haunts nationwide. Dark Knight Halloween World, featuring the retro haunted Halloween trail and the 3D Psycho Asylum. Ten out of ten. Very scary. I recommend it. Get your tickets at darknightli.com. Dark Knight Halloween World. So much fun. It's scary.
1: monster lovers, young and old, living and dead. You can now make it Halloween all year round. The Gooligans are dying for you to check out their creepy comedy horror show, now on their YouTube channel. Have you been ravenous for programs that are geared more towards your sick sensibility? Have you been fiending for horror and comedy so fun that it makes you wanna scream? Well, dig no further episodes of the Gooligans mini-series are available for you to sink your teeth into. And if you don't know about the Gooligans, it's like the monkeys meets the monsters meets Pee-wee's Playhouse. These fun party monsters exist purely to bring on the death of your life-sucking normal everyday TV show. The Gooligans follows the adventures of Boris Stein, the monstrous Frankenstein construct, Wolfgang W. Wolfgang, the likable Lycanthrope, and Void, King of the Slow Zombies, joined by a cadre of your favorite cult Cretans, including vampires, sea creatures, luchadors, and sexy go-go girls. Check out the full episodes of their miniseries now on the Gooligans YouTube channel, and have a scary good time. Where can I get my pickles when I can't get to a farmer's market or festival? The answer is Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Listen, I've been selling a small pickle my whole life. I know all about it. From the vine to the brine, they keep their pickles cold with a delicious, diverse selection of gourmet pickles, including their savory, classic bread-and-butter sweet chip, horseradish pickle, jalapeno pickle, and sweet Cajun pickle, They even got pickled beets and okra, a variety of sour treats for your next barbecue or get-together. But if you visit their store in Bayville, Long Island, New York, there's so much more, so much more. A fantastic selection of physical media, comics, music, movies, VHS, and Matt Roran, their enthusiastic pickle salesman. It's kind of a big dill. Check them out now at Horman'sBestPickles.com. Hey, quit jerking your gherkin and head over to Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Listeners and fans of The Offering can get their hands on their very own The Offering with Jerry Horror merch, now only at Tee Public. Find your own fresh The Offering with Jerry Hara high-quality merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, and mugs. Just like the show, we've got gear that's mostly horror, always genre. The Offering with Jerry Hara Tea Public Store has everything you need to represent your favorite podcast. Folks, head on over to teepublic.com right now and pick up your very own offering tea today. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara, Got a question or story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the offering. Now back to the show. So at this point, (sighs) Carpenter and Hill are out, but don't worry. We've got the Kenny Medina draft. Now, Kenny and Medina, those are the last names of these two gentlemen. We're going to get into that. So, good news. Picking up immediately from the finale of the second film, both Michael and Loomis are alive. Okay, Mustafa, God likes that. That's a good direction. We flash forward 10 years into the future. As far as anyone knows, Michael was burned to death during the explosion at the end of Halloween 2. What actually happened was a bunch of medics took Michael into an emergency helicopter because they saw vital signs. Who the fuck would save this guy? Like, they see the vital signs, like, oh, I think we can save him. No, no, let him die. Like, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's what Loomis was saying. Just let it die. The cable within the helicopter snaps and Michael's body ends up falling into Lake Michigan. All right, fine. It's not that different from kind of what we got, but... I just think this whole opening, like action sequence with the, the you know the body dangling and then it falls into into uh, Lake Michigan. It's ridiculous. We're never really sure how Michael comes back to life. None of it is explained, and it's kept very vague. I think because they knew it was ridiculous. The original beginning of the film was to have a high-profile rock star in his mansion, and he would get violently murdered. Sammy Hagar was who they had in mind and ultimately this was cut from a later draft. That's right folks because now it's 1985, 1986 and this is the MTV Headbangers Ball version of Halloween. And I'm kind of going to be honest, this is the one that I wish they made because it is fucking ridiculous. It it, it look, we're just we're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. It's crazy. So we see Lori now. She's now Lori Jameson Via marriage, they were hot on getting Jamie Lee Curtis to do this movie She kind of just had a box office failure in Perfect Which is the aerobics movie with John Travolta Yikes, Um, not a good movie Great to see Jamie Lee Curtis in a leotard I always like seeing her in spandex, there's nothing wrong with that But it's not a good movie Lori's a successful businesswoman Uh, She's living in Chicago She's the editor for a prestigious magazine. She's living with her husband, Terrence, who is a music video director. Now you're starting to see where this is going. We are also introduced to Lori's supposed niece named Heather. Steffi calls her aunt Heather, who ends up getting married. uh, Excuse me, getting murdered. (laughs) Um, Did I mention she has a six-year-old daughter named Steffi? Yeah, because that element was was this is the introduction of that element of having a child, which is kind of eventually where they go with the Jamie Lloyd thing. There's actually a lot of victims in this movie. And it goes above and beyond with Gore. This is much more a Friday the 13th film. This isn't set in Haddonfield. You've got you've got almost no Haddonfield in this movie. It's set in the bustling big city, the Windy City, Chi Town. Lori is plagued by PTSD and continues to see Dr. Loomis privately for psychiatric help. Okay, we're off to a good start. We, we were, It's years later. Lori's done good. She, Loomis is in it. They're working together. We're going to work it out. We're going to get to the bottom of Michael Myers trying to kill you. This movie's insane. So Lori's writing this cover story about a famous heavy metal rock star. And look At this point in time They were trying to get somebody like Ozzy Osbourne Sammy Hagar Alice Cooper was in the running So you kind of have This big opening Where Michael kills the rock star in his mansion And he's There's a bunch of groupies there He kills them too, they're doing cocaine Because it's the 80s and what else do you do? You kill groupies who are doing cocaine He steals Okay Okay I got to compose myself, folks, because this is, it's just so fucking over the top. Michael then steals the rock star's Porsche, and he runs over, he runs down like 10 people who are waiting in line to see the new Halloween movie. So this is like 1984, 85, and this script is going full meta, where it's like there's a movie, you know, like kind of in the Scream series, there's the Stab movies. So, in this specific universe, there are Halloween films subsequently being made. So, the reason that I kind of do like this script, not just because it's crazy, people are stalked and slayed in a more urban environment, and it's kind of interesting to see Michael, you know, like he can do this in a small town, but how does he get away with it like in Chicago, you know? We learn, and this is one of the, look, this is a banger. This script is a banger. We learn via a creepy photo that Michael has been stalking Laurie for years. And Laurie's going through these photos, and she's like, oh, my God. Michael's, like, in the background of all these photos, and it's just creepy as hell. And I, I kind of like that. That was, you know, something good. That works. Straight up, though, this this movie... This this script is cocaine. There there is like it's it's as we say like it's literally like cocaine was like hey I'm gonna write a script and this is kind of what happened. The final act puts Lori and her daughter in the sights of uh, Michael. Loomis is basically in denial that Michael is coming back. Laurie basically says to him like look look at these photos it's Michael Myers, and Loomis is like all right you crazy bitch you know like I, I've had enough time to pack up this relationship. But ultimately, Laurie's right, even though Loomis is in denial. At one point, there's, there's this whole over-the-top final sequence that was more like an action movie, where they're fighting in this mansion, and there's a pool, and there's power lines. Laurie grabs a fire poker at one point, and she shoves it into Michael's skull. Did I mention that? Yeah. Michael takes an unwieldy amount of abuse. I mean, they do everything except throw the kitchen sink. This is more like a Friday the 13th movie. So it's kind of like we're hitting Michael Myers with cars. We're electrocuting him. We're drowning him. A chase ensues. Lori runs down Michael with her BMW, knocking him into the pool and impaling him. Loomis shows up. And electrocutes Michael via a downed power line Ultimately <laughs> Ultimately though with the electricity coursing through his body Michael catches fire and explodes in the pool That's pretty cool, right? Michael Myers just fucking straight up explodes Which they would do years later in 93 with Jason goes to hell They would just straight up wholesale blow up Jason Voorhees We zoom in on Michael's grave which is now amended to read 1957 to 1985. And this is where it gets even crazier. You thought that it was nuts, but here we go again. So Loomis is there at the grave and he's saying a prayer. Michael bursts out of his grave and begins to walk towards Loomis. Michael convulses violently and his eyes glow bright yellow, like white hot. And he continues toward Dr. Loomis And then all of a sudden, Michael's eyes darken and black smoke just comes shooting out of the eyeballs of the white mask and suddenly shooting flames with the intensity of two flamethrowers in one enormous explosion. Michael's entire body explodes and credits. So just let me recap this for you. Lori hits Michael with the BMW. He goes flying into the pool. He gets impaled. Loomis uses a down power line Shocks Michael And he explodes <laughs> Loomis goes to the, graves, the gravestone Of where Michael is buried He jumps out of the grave Smoke comes blowing out of his eyes And as he comes trying to kill Loomis again From beyond the grave He explodes a second time So Michael Myers explodes twice in this movie? Like What are we even doing? Like, what is this? Like, what? what is, what is happening? I'm not going to lie, though. This Kenny Medina script is my favorite. Like, the Dennis Etchinson, I like the concept of Michael Myers being a ghost, but I love the concept of the backdrop being very MTV-centric, where Lori's husband is directing these music videos. We've got cameos. It was going to be a soundtrack that was going to be Heavily, heavily influenced with metal. And I think at a certain point, they had the participation of MTV because obviously MTV was smart enough. They had done business with WWF. They knew about cross promotion and it was something that they were open to doing because they were at the center of the zeitgeist of all pop culture. People forget, like, I grew up watching MTV and that was the place to go. If you were a young person, There was news, there was events, you want to learn about movies. MTV was a hub of culture. We didn't have YouTube. If you wanted to know what was going on, what movies were coming out, you want to see Encino Man, you want to see Nightmare on Elm Street 3, MTV, you know, they used to cover movies too. That was a big part of what they did. And uh, unfortunately, everything's terrible now, except for this podcast, but everything's terrible. And you should definitely call it a day. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. So at this point, there had been a ton of scripts submitted, but not all of them were as cool as the last two that I told you about. But let's, let's talk about another one. Uh, one more for the road, right? Can't hurt. The basic premise here that was used for Halloween 4 essentially takes shape, no pun intended, with this script. What we ultimately got is derived from this script. It's very interesting. This was the first script out of all of them. There had been something like 27 screenplays that were written up until this point. This is, right now, again, we're like late 86. This was the first script to have two drafts written of it. It introduces the possible psychic connection between Jamie Lloyd and Michael Myers. At this point, they realized they were not getting... Jamie Lee Curtis back So they needed to do something different So this is the first being the 28th Script in the cycle This is the first script where they're like Okay, we're just completely writing Out Laurie Strode We're not going to get her back We're not going to recast her Maybe if she makes another couple of bombs With John Travolta, we'll get her back Shem Bitterman had taken all of the previous Writer's scripts and his version Became the closest to the one That we actually saw that got made Unfortunately, due to one reason or another, his name should have been credited on the final version of Halloween 4 that was released in theaters, but it wasn't. Ultimately, the rumor is that there were up to 33 scripts in total. Several of these versions were given to Alan B. McElroy, who would be the final writer. Some elements survived, others did not. The producers had a pile of ideas. For one reason or another, Shem Bitterman would not be credited for the final screenplay and most of the story elements up until that point. Look, obviously you saw the first version of the, you know, the first one we saw, it took place in Haddonfield and it was a ghost. And the next one takes place in Chicago. This screenplay that Bitterman wrote was like the closest to what we actually got. And a lot of the elements that he introduces specifically in this film survive into the final script. So, I'm not going to reiterate anything that was in Bitterman's script because you, you know it already. The bones of the story, the bones of the screenplay are essentially there. February 25th, 1988. Writer Alan B. McElroy, he was a Cleveland, Ohio native. He was brought in to write the script for Halloween 4. Now, the writer's strike that was going on was to begin on March 7th, that year. This forced McElroy to develop a concept, pitch the story, and send in the final draft in under 11 days. So it's incredible to think that one of these films that's so beloved all these years later was written so quickly. I have my own theory. Let me just stop here for a second. My theory is... They sent over a bunch of the screenplays And I think Bitterman's draft Was the one that resonated most with Alan B. McElroy He kind of said to himself These are not going to work We don't have Jamie Lee Curtis And we, we've got to make this work with what we have This movie was written incredibly quick I mean, 11 days You know, me and producer Pete we do some writing of our own, and, and I, I mean, I guess it could be, if you have no choice, you can write a script in 11 days. Not only that, it's a Halloween movie. Like, I'm not trying to be a dick or anything, but come on. It, it's, we know the sequence of events that are going to happen. Michael comes back, he hunts down some people, kills a few people, and then somehow he's dispatched until next time. But again, the making of Halloween 4 is about overthinking it. That's kind of the the moral of the story here. They overthink everything. Dwight H. Little directed the film. He did a bunch of movies that I love. He did "Marked for Death" with Steven Seagal, and he did "Rapid Fire" with Brandon Lee. He's actually very adept at action. Dwight H. Little as the director, because like now they now they're basically like we have to get this movie made. Like rights are expiring, things are starting to expire. The people who are going to distribute Halloween for. They're like, listen, we need a movie. You need to get this movie in theaters by Halloween. And again, we're talking, this is February 25th, so the writer's strike is March 7th. They have a lot of hurdles to overcome just to get this thing into pre-production. Dwight H. Little goes and he does extensive research in the history of Halloween And a lot of the harvest imagery that we see, especially in the creepy opening sequence like that, people always say like, oh, this movie feels the most like actual, the Halloween autumn season. And that's because Dwight H. Little did a lot of research into figuring out what he was going to put into this film, what it was going to look like, what it was going to feel like. Daniel Harris and Dwight Little would work on Marked for Death the Free Willy films, and Bones. Yes, the, the TV show Bones, not the vehicle with Snoop Dogg at New Line Cinema with Pam Greer. Lest you forget that that didn't... That's a Stay Tuned and a half. You you might be seeing that episode sooner than later because some crazy stories about that film. So this movie, it opens up the original script. The opening shot was a long hospital corridor suddenly blowing up and throwing Loomis from the explosion... It's a reference to the end of Halloween 2 and gives us, like, direct connective tissue to where we left off. It was to show how Loomis would have survived. Because if you've seen Halloween 2, the 1981 version, everybody gets fried. I mean, Michael gets cooked alive. There's no way that Loomis could have survived. But, you know, movie logic, it is what it is. It was later decided the film should not have any connections to the previous two films. And the explosive opening was never shot. Director Dwight Little later explained, we decided to reference the first movie. I think the reason was that we didn't want to get tied up with a lot of logic police questions with Michael and exactly what happened to Dr. Loomis. So basically, the only acknowledgement in the film is like you see that Dr. Loomis is burned, so we know he's scarred up. And it's funny, too, because... They had different effects artists working, so the scars on Loomis change, and there's like that whole portion on his face that looks like a fried egg, and like, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. I guess the continuity director was, uh, I don't know. I don't don't know, man. I don't know what was going on with that, but his scars change. It becomes one of these things, now that I've told you, you're going to be watching Halloween 4, and you're like, oh my God, it does change from scene to scene, the makeup, the scars, it's crazy. Alan B. McElroy studied all of this very carefully, and he figured, okay, this is what's going to go in the script, this is what isn't. I think ultimately, though, Dwight H. Little, he had seen the Halloween films, he saw all three of them, but he didn't go back and watch the first two because he kind of wanted to have his own vision with this movie. So he felt that if he had gone and watched the, the Carpenter film and the 81 film, it would cloud what he was trying to do, and he was kind of trying to do his own thing. A scene was filmed to bridge the story with Halloween Two. It was a flashback to the finale of Part Two, with a scene where Loomis is being tended to by paramedics, and he sees the burning body of the shape. Loomis exclaims to the EMS technicians, let him burn, let him burn, but they douse the flaming body of Myers despite his pleas. This moment eventually was added to Halloween Kills, with Lori saying the line after she sets her house on fire with Michael trapped at the end of Halloween. If you remember in 2018's Halloween, the whole house is on fire and she's yelling, they're driving away in the pickup truck, let it burn, let it burn. So they actually shot this. I don't know if it's on the Scream Factory disc. I've been going through it. I haven't seen it. I think it's. it might be one of those scenes that was just they shot it and it was lost to time. A lot of times they didn't keep this stuff. Nowadays, everything's digital, so they keep everything. You know, you've you've got these, these big databases that are backed up, and the footage is there. You can go visit at any time. Unfortunately, in 1988, that was not the case. Jamie's name in the original script was uh, Brittany, which was going to be called Britty. was going to be her name, and that's just stupid. I don't even like that. I'm kind of glad they didn't go with that Basically they changed the name to Jamie Because it was an homage to Jamie Lee Curtis The mask This is my biggest point of contention My biggest fucking problem It sticks in my craw and I don't care what anybody says Uh, The Michael Myers mask That is used on the poster Is essentially a still From the second movie And it was painted when I was a kid and I saw that poster, when I saw the Halloween 4 poster, I was so fucking excited. Unfortunately, because nobody could get on the same page, the Michael Myers mask that was used was continually altered throughout production, and it's mostly at the behest of producers. People would come on the studio would say, ah, oh, that doesn't look right. This doesn't look right. So everybody kept warring. And it's funny because history repeats itself. And the same thing happened again. They had fucking Stan Winston design the mask for H2O. And they kept fucking with it. There was a CGI version when he's looking at, Laurie's looking at Michael through the door. It's the same thing with part four. They keep altering the mask. There's even like this one version of the mask in a scene in the school where it has like a primer code on it and it looks pink, they left that shit in the movie. Like, there's a couple of different scenes where you see that the mask is pink. Uh, it is what it is. Like, I'm just, I'm gonna let it go. Like, it's one of those things. Like, it sticks in my craw, but whatever. I don't even know what a craw is. I don't even want to think about what a craw is. In a cut scene, Michael is coincidentally looking for a new mask at a store at the same time Jamie is. Okay. He grabs a Ronald Reagan mask and walks off screen. A few seconds later, he throws it away and grabs the traditional bleached Michael Myers William Shatner mask instead. But uh, that was really kind of a weird gag. Like, they were trying to infuse a little bit more humor into this movie, but Mustafa Akkad just wouldn't have it. And ultimately, they use those two police officers that are in part five and that's kind of where they try to infuse more humor, and it just falls flat and doesn't work. Let's talk about the real MVP of 1988. After viewing a rough edit, it was decided that the movie was too soft, so the producers brought in special effects expert John Carl Beekler for one day of extra blood filming, as they called it. The thumb in the forehead and the rednecks getting their head twisted. Those are some of the effects he did. John Carl Beekler was hired as the film's special effects artist because of his rising reputation uh, for creating great effects in horror films. Within 1988 alone, Beekler directed and did the effects for Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, and Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. So... Like I said, the three biggest horror icons of all time. One man is doing the effects. In fact, he even directed the Friday the Thirteenth entry. That's pretty impressive. It's a hat trick that we rarely see these days. It could only be done in the '80s with practical effects, where you're working on stuff that's being seen in camera. Nowadays, that would never happen with CGI and digital artistry. It's just a uh, you know just wouldn't happen. Halloween Four is one of these movies that. I think if you grew up with it, it's definitely beloved. There's no way avoiding that warm and fuzzy nostalgic feeling that you can have for this film. On some levels, it works. On some levels, it doesn't. People don't like this film because it puts a child in jeopardy. But then there were other people, like I saw this film in 1988, so like I was a little kid at that point. So seeing Jamie Lloyd in Jeopardy kind of added a new dimension, like, You saw in other movies, you saw like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, he's going after teenagers and young adults and stuff, but he never went after kids. And I think that's why this is a weird entry, because it's like, for the most part, Michael Myers is stalking down his child niece. And that's kind of creepy. You know, there's a thought like when you're watching this as a kid, like, shit, Freddy and Jason might leave me alone, but Michael Myers will kill a child. And that is a very specific decision that they made for the fourth and fifth films to put Daniel Harris as basically the protagonist and the child that was in jeopardy. We could get into the whole thing where the ending, she's dressed as the clown, kind of like Michael was in the first movie, and then she kills the stepmother or whatever it was. They weren't going to pay that off. They didn't have the balls. I think a lot of people who shot that they were like, hey, we're going to do this in the next movie. We're going to have this little girl. She's going to become the next Michael Myers. I think even Daniel Harris is quoted as saying that. But they didn't do it. It just it didn't work out you know, the way they thought it would. I guess history is what it is, but I think ultimately I would have liked to have seen these other movies. The Kenny Medina script is the most interesting to me because it's a product of its time. I feel like movies now are too afraid to be time and place. Everybody's trying to, they have these floating timelines now, or the timeline is very ambiguous. Sometime in the 2000s. Well, when? Eh, it's, It's sometime. It's, you know, it's nebulous. You don't really know when it is. But I like the fact that the Kenny Medina script was very carbon dated by the fact that it had this heavy MTV influence. Out of all of them, that's the one I'd like to see most. Secondly, obviously, the Etchinson script with the ghost stuff is just fantastic. But I digress. For the record, folks, Peter Griffin, star of Family Guy, his favorite movie is Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. If you've seen the episode, if you know, you know, it's hysterical. Definitely look it up. If you haven't seen that Family Guy episode where Peter Griffin gets to meet his hero who played Michael Myers, it is quite funny. Look, This has been one hell of a season, folks. A lot of good movies. 1988 was a ridiculously influential year for horror and for films in general that would influence everything that came even decades now. The reverberations of everything we felt in this series of films that I covered, everything, all of them, they're super influential on on everything that would come later. So I think it's also, when you think about 1988 as kind of this turning point, because in 89, we see the return of a lot of franchises. We get Lethal Weapon 2, we get Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we get Ghostbusters 2. I think at that point, especially with a lot of Hollywood studios, they became very aware that they had these IPs and that, hey, wait a second, we can just keep repackaging them and reselling them this is the turning point. 88 is like one of the last years, even though you've got a ton of sequels. I mean, horror sequels were look, how many Frankenstein movies did they make? How many Wolfman movies? Sequels have always been baked into horror, but as far as other movies, you know, it was kind of like, we're going to get sequels to everything. And that's kind of the way it is now. If there's a successful intellectual property, you're going to, you're going to get ad nauseum. I mean, it's ridiculous, especially even nowadays with like Star Wars. It's like, well, if you want to know how C3PO got his red arm, you got to read. There's this, uh, you know, graphic novel that's all about that. But if you want to see Chewbacca's mom, you got to play the Lego Star Wars game because that'll explain that. There's all this fucking tertiary content, and it's annoying. Whatever happened to the days where you go to the movies, you see the movie, this is what happens, that's the end of the movie, maybe you smoke a joint with your friends and you talk about it and that's it. You don't have to fucking go online and play some kind of fucking weird Candyland game to find out. Look, viral marketing is cool. What J.J. Abrams did with Cloverfield back in the day, that was cool. That was something different. But not everything needs its own backstory. I feel that's the problem with modern cinema, is that everything is over-explained. You know, we have to learn about... It started, even at 89, it starts with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's kind of like, oh, we get this whole opening that was basically a, a soft pilot for the, the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. But it's like... It's fucking hat on a hat. It's like, and that's how I became Indiana Jones. You know, we even, there's a funny joke. Like, you want to do, I don't know how this became the Indiana Jones show, but there's even that funny joke with Sean Connery. He's like, oh, we named the dog Indiana. Like, that's funny. It's a joke. There's a little bit of exposition. Oh, okay, yeah. Look, just stop beating us over the head with this stuff, man. We don't need to know every little detail. That's what makes somebody like Michael Myers scary, is that, He just is. Once you get into the brass tacks of things, I enjoy those Rob Zombie movies, but I don't need to know that shit. It was a different take because there was nowhere left to go with it. So you had to reinvent the mythos and perhaps give it this modern take of like, you know, we're talking all about PTSD and trauma and what are the psychological effects of abuse and how did this all happen? And I get it, that's Zombie's take. To be honest, he was painted in a corner. Where else was he gonna go with it? This has been a hell of a season, folks. I hope that you have enjoyed all of the nonsense that I have embroiled you with. Don't forget, leave a review. Follow me on social media, at Jerry Hara. I'm on the TikTok. I'm on the Instagram, the Twitter, all that good stuff. Well, folks, that pretty much wraps it all up until next time. Ladies and gentlemen, friends beyond the binary, I am Jerry Hara. This has been The Offering, where we are mostly horror, always genre. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture. Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offering. I'm Tom. My partner, Mike, and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today.
0: This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.